You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. It may look like an ordinary podcast, but this one's bigger on the inside, and it can travel anywhere in time and space. Pack your sonic screwdrivers and your jelly babies. Grab your hats, scarves, and tighten your bow ties. You're the companion now. So get ready to run with your hosts, Jason Hunt and Paul Gann. This is Talking Time Lords. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Talking Time Wars. This is episode number 38, Remembrance of the Daleks Story Review. I am, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, my podcasting companion through time and space, we have Paul Gann. Weapons, they're always useless in the end. <laughs> oh, you look hungry. How about lunch? Yes. <laughs> What's going on? Paul. Money. Exactly. (laughs) How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing good. Oh, man. Great. (laughs) I am thoroughly thrilled that we are recording this episode. Um, Uh, You just want to be able to talk like Sylvester McCoy. (laughs) Maybe. Um, (laughs) Guys, you should have seen it before we started. Jason was giddy like a little school kid. <laughs> ah, I am so glad we are here We're, for this this Dalek story episode. This will definitely be an improvement from our last Dalek story that we reviewed with the Sixth Doctor. Not that it was the Sixth Doctor's fault, it was the writer's fault. Uh, but this one, this one is going to be great. Um, obviously, uh, <laughs> as of the time of this recording, we have recently been talking about the uh, companion announcement the new companion announcement if you haven't heard our thoughts on that and what we think about the new companion bill go back and check out our bonus episode that was released a little bit ago we're recording these a little bit in advance so that's going to be your best place to hear our thoughts on that announcement Uh, anything else any other news paul before we start digging into this story review here I can't think of anything at the moment, no. Spoilers. Well, uh, this is, uh, of course, Remembrance of the Daleks. It was the first story of season 25 of the classic 
uh, series, and it aired from the 5th to the 26th of October, 1988, in four half-hour episode time slots. It was written by Ben Aronovich, uh, which is a new writer to our Dalek stories. And in addition to, of course, being the only Dalek story featuring Sylvester McCoy as the Seventh Doctor, we also get a new companion. One of the more memorable of the classic uh, companions uh, by the name of Ace. And uh, before we jump into the episode, uh, first of all, overall thoughts on the story and overall thoughts on Ace. I like the story. Um, I like the story better than... Well, let me let me put it this way. I like the fact that we didn't have nearly as much fat to trim mm-hmm. in the storytelling of this. You know, if things were in the story, they at least had a resolution, whether we liked the resolution or not. Yes. You know, uh, and so to me, that's a, an improvement already, you know, in just in the fact that we don't have a bunch of loose threads. Just let me just throw this in there just because I can, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like sloppy storytelling. Let me put it that way. And this is a lot neater, a lot cleaner storytelling, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, and so it's already got a, a plus in my book just for that. And then Ace. <laughs> Ace is crazy. <laughs> in a good way or a bad way? Both. <laughs> Uh, in a good way, in that she and you know she she doesn't put up with a lot of crap and stuff, but in a bad way, in that if she doesn't chill out, she'll eventually kill herself. <laughs> gotcha. This, in my estimation, is probably, of course, is my own opinion here. This is probably the best Dalek story episode since Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah, and. I may be slightly biased since Sylvester McCoy is my second favorite doctor ever. Um, <laughs> but I, I thoroughly enjoy this story. It's got, uh, and we'll, we'll get into this as we get into the story, but there's a lot of elements that the seventh doctor's run set up that immediate, that directly tie into how the revised series uh, was set up in 2005. There's a lot of elements that, the Seventh Doctor's War really laid the foundation for moving forward into the new series. I can tell you one right now. Okay. There's humor in this. Yes. <laughs> there's there's some a couple of witty remarks and things in some of the previous ones we've talked about, but we've not seen true out-and-out humor in Doctor Who since the Fourth Doctor uh, because it got much more dry i think you'd say in tone a little more tending towards the the dramatic at least with our dalek stories um and there's nothing wrong with with dramatic but it's dramatic is always more fun if there's a little bit of humor thrown in you know exactly but i i like i love the storyline uh i love the characters in the storyline ace is in my top five companions, for sure, uh, she she borders up there uh, around the top three mark. Anyone, and we'll get into this, anyone who likes to blow things up 
and is willing to take on a Dalek with a baseball bat is okay in my book. So, <laughs> and uh, one last thing before we get into the story, uh, overall thoughts real quick of uh, Sylvester McCoy as the seventh doctor. Uh, I like the fact that he was able to go from like super serious to slapstick funny kind of at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Yeah. But I also thought that he brought a whimsicalness that we've not seen since Tom Baker. Okay. You know, and that I think carried over into the new revival series. Mm-hmm. Um, because that whimsy was kind of lost in the f- the fifth and sixth doctors uh, a little bit, even though they, they still had that twinkle in their eye and everything. They were not as, quick to how would you say it they they didn't bring that fancifulness into the show okay um and and i think he brought that back he brought back what we lost when we lost tom baker i think okay yeah and and that's not to say that i didn't enjoy the portrayal of the fifth and sixth doctors because i do but they're a lot more along the lines of the tone that we had with the first doctor, I think yeah. more so first uh, and, and third, you know, I think, I think we, we still had a little bit of fancifulness with the third doctor, but not nearly as much as we did with the second and the fourth and, and the seventh, mm-hmm. you know, um, he was a little bit more reserved when it came to that type of, uh, of thing. He, he was more grounded. Yeah. I, I've already said he's my second favorite doctor. Uh, I love, Sylvester McCoy as the doctor he's great uh he, he, you know the the way he approaches things you know he just sort of goes into things without much thought sometimes but he always emerges you know the wiser the better you know and, and the way he interacts with Ace in particular uh during his run goes from you know best friends to uh, slightly overprotective father figure at times to older brother to back to best friend all right. in the space of the same scene sometimes you know it, right it, and uh, <laughs> it's really it's really great and he can be you know laughing and playful and funny and then he meets up with the villain and he's you know cold as ice mm-hmm. at other times you know it, and this is not just from this episode but overall well there's one particular point in this story that I literally sat there and and thought, oh my God, that is just like David Tennant at the end of his run when he literally sat there and said to someone, I am like a God, I can do anything I want. And we'll get there. (laughs) And on that note, I think we need to start diving into this story. The Seventh Doctor and his new companion, Ace, uh, land the TARDIS in London, 1963. A mere month or two after the First Doctor, Susan, Ian, and Barbara left. It, it's Which is really cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Ace was introduced at the end of the previous season. She teamed up with the with Mel, who was the current companion at the time. Mel left at the end of last season, and Ace stuck around 
and join the Doctor on his adventures. They're they're going around. Of course, Ace is wearing her bomber jacket, backpack, and her giant boombox that she's playing. And uh, she's garnering (laughs) a lot of attention from the kids at Coal Hill School, which is just across the street from where they've landed the TARDIS. And if you're a fan of Doctor Who, you know where what Coal, Coal Hill School is. Of course, the school where Clara, Ian, and Barbara have all taught at. And I believe the Brigadier substitute taught at for a period of time during the Fifth Doctor's run. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I haven't seen that, so I'm not 100% certain. But there is trouble going on because there's this van with an aerial a big highly technological aerial for the time period sitting outside the school scanning for things ace has no interest in it because she's hungry uh the doctor of course is immediately fascinated by what this is ace goes to get some lunch which ends up being four bacon sandwiches and a cup of coffee i think <laughs> and the doctor sticks around to investigate what's going on with this van uh ace meets a a young man in the restaurant in the cafe that she's getting food in um who will turn out to be uh what's his name here i have it right here sergeant mike smith but we'll get to that in a moment the doctor first gets on top of the van to make some measurements and take some uh you know observations of this aerial <laughs> and then just hops in the back to see what's going on this was so Tom Baker. <laughs> he just hops in the back and starts, you know, poking around and checking out the instruments and seeing what they're scanning. And uh, the the woman inside, uh, Professor Jensen, thinks that he's someone else and starts giving him the update on the uh, magnetic fluctuations outside Coal Hill School. And he begins to respond to her deductions and... <laughs> adds to her conclusions and she's slightly confused who are you but she's fascinated because he just hopped in the back of the van and knows all about what's going on see i almost want to have a problem with this but because i enjoyed it so much i can't you know um <clears throat> because if you were doing that today she would have turned around and screamed because <laughs> you know she would have been freaked out because she had no clue who this guy was. Yeah. She she didn't do that. She just turns around and she's like, oh, hello. Right. Who are you? Who are you know? Well, when, when he starts you know. out, when he starts out by, you know, completing her scientific thought, you know, <laughs> that sort of calms things down a little bit, I guess. But it was, it was just funny. The scene was great. I love the scene. And um, all of a sudden she gets a call. From the fact that uh, Group Captain Gilmore has summoned them to the secondary source at Totter's Lane Junkyard. Yeah. (laughs) Which the Doctor has visited on multiple occasions. Hmm. Uh, So Professor Jensen calls out to Mike, who Ace is walking back down the street with. Uh, It's when she finds out that he's a sergeant. And uh, they all hop in the van and take off down to Totter's Lane. Did you notice that the doctor didn't even ask. He just pulls Ace into the van and nobody even realizes they're even in the van until they get there. Right. Right. You know, 
<laughs> well, I think Professor Jensen and Mike didn't really care at that point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Mike's running around the van to get to the driver's seat. Uh, the doctor throws open the back doors of the van, says, Ace, get in! And holds the door open while she runs and jumps in the back, and then they slam the doors and take off down the street. So uh, they get to, they get to Totter's Lane, and one of Group Captain Gilmore's soldiers has been attacked and killed by an unidentified assailant. And this killer is hiding in the junkyard, and uh, the doctor seems to know what it is. Group Captain Gilmore doesn't. And seems to think the doctor is uh, being nosy. Okay, I have to ask. Okay. Am I the only one that really, really, really wanted this to be a younger version of the Brigadier? <laughs> <laughs> well, considering the fact that the Brigadier uh, begins his career, it isn't even the Brigadier uh, until later on in the timeline... They kind of had to have Group Captain Gilmore. Well, instead. they could have. They could have just had a younger actor come in and play the role, and him not actually be the brigadier. Would you really you know? want at this point another <laughs> actor to come in and play the brigadier? Considering that the following season they had a storyline with the brigadier in it. Well, the guy that they picked to play this character looked a lot like the brigadier. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little bit. I could have seen this guy playing that role as the younger brigadier uh, just saying <laughs> it is funny though uh, as the doctor is trying to convince the group captain to uh pull back the men and not try and interfere uh he calls him brigadier yeah yeah he's like brigadier no group this, captain this know. guy acted a lot like the brigadier yes. you know and so that was what kind of made me wish i wish they had just you know, made this Lethbridge Stewart and, you know, just have him be, you know, of a lesser rank at a younger age, you know, and uh, and done it that way. But, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. As they're trying to clear away the body of the dead man, a, an energy weapon fires out from the back of the junkyard, killing another one of the soldiers. Uh, group Captain Gilmore orders... <laughs> Grenade rounds fired into the the junkyard, hopefully destroying whatever it is. And the doctor says, you know, it's not going to work. And <laughs> group captain says something effective. And nothing, he says, nothing remotely human can survive that attack. And that's the problem. It's not even remotely human. Um, <laughs> he knows what this is. We don't. But then all of a sudden, out comes... A Dalek, a gray Dalek, and uh, you'll you'll find quickly we have two factions of Daleks in the story: the white and the gray. And the gray Dalek is, of course, firing away at the soldiers. They're firing back, not doing any damage. This is when the Doctor turns to Ace and says, "Ace, give me some of that Nitro Nine you're not carrying." <laughs> Nitro Nine being Ace's homemade explosives. Yeah, because everybody wants their teenager making homemade explosives, yeah. right? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but he he acquires the explosives, gets the Dalek's attention, plants the explosives, and is able to blow up said Dalek. Uh, of course, the timing mechanism is a little bit shorter than Ace told him. 
You said 10 seconds. <laughs> well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> that kind of needs to be pretty precise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I thought it was cool that they were in, it was in uh, coffee thermoses, you know. Yeah, or, or like an aerosol can of some sort. Um, it looked like coffee thermoses to me. Yeah. But, <laughs> but of course, you know, Professor Jensen, the group captain, Mike, and one other woman who's another scientific advisor. Her name is Allison Williams are all there and they're investigating this destroyed Dalek and they're, you know, remarking how it's not of terrestrial origin. And, uh, In order to clear it away, Mike enlists the cooperation of his friend, Mr. Ratcliffe, uh, who is part of what Mike calls the association. And so while the group captain and the rest of the military head back to their base, uh, Mr. Ratcliffe comes in and hauls away the destroyed Dalek to one of his warehouses, clears it away, where apparently... He's working with something that's not remotely human either. And the thing is, is they try and give us an idea of who this person or thing is. Yes. (laughs) I know who it looked like. Yes. (laughs) And the first time I watched this, I I knew, I was like, I know who that is. I know who that is. (laughs) Exactly. But we'll get to that later. Because this... This person that Ratcliffe is talking to is sitting with his back to us in a large chair looking at some sort of battle computer. With a helmet on. Mm-hmm. And, and, you're... and whose voice does it have? Well, <laughs> it sounds very Dalek-like, but not quite. And we'll it's... let you make your own decision about that one. <laughs> but the doctor decides that he has to get back to the school and investigate the school. He and Ace go back to Coal Hill School. He's irritated because it's the wrong Dalek that's there, which makes everyone go, wait, what? You knew this was happening? Huh? (laughs) (laughs) The wrong Dalek was there. Okay. Uh, The doctor and Ace begin searching the school, and he reveals that the Daleks have been following him. Because they're trying to secure the Hand of Omega, which is a device that the Doctor had smuggled to Earth uh, when he first arrived. And it's this very powerful stellar manipulator, as we later find out. It's able to create and alter stars. This would not be the first time that the Doctor had ended up with something of this nature on his TARDIS. Right. You know, <laughs> I don't right. think he was supposed to necessarily have this thing either. No, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But he did. Um, and he smuggled it to Earth and it's hiding here on Earth. And we'll get to that later. Uh, but they go down to the basement of the school after talking with the headmaster, who's acting a little funny. And they discover a transmat device. And as they're investigating the rest of the basement, something begins to appear on the transmat device. It's a Dalek. And of course, the doctor, you know, rewires the transmat device to have one half of the Dalek materialize with the other half of the Dalek, causing it to just 
self-disintegrate. <laughs> he says, nasty things, transmats. Uh, and then, of course, he starts talking about how, well, won't they be... Ace asks him, well, won't they be able to fix them? Well, of course. The Daleks always leave a, an operator to, you know, guard it. And she goes, that would be another Dalek, wouldn't it? And his eyes get big, and he goes, yes. <laughs> and they start creeping back towards the stairs as a white Dalek comes wheeling around the corner, yelling exterminate at them. Ace beats the doctor up the stairs and gets knocked to the ground by the headmaster who closes the door at the top of the stairs, locking the doctor down there with the Dalek. As the doctor is banging on the door, we get the final episode conclusion of the doctor banging on the door and the Dalek levitating up the stairs after him, yelling exterminate. Yeah. And we got, you know, and <laughs> and that was it. Uh, what did you think about the, this uh, this cliffhanger here? I liked the the fact that uh, we had kind of gone back to the more classic cliffhanger uh, that we had had before. You know, where it really felt like there was a risk. You know, something to lose at the end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, because in a couple of these that we've watched, there's been several places where I didn't really get that. You know, it was like, well, it's a cliffhanger, but it's not that big of a cliffhanger. Kind right. of, you know. And this kind of reminded me, to be honest, of the scene where Barbara first saw the Dalek. Mm-hmm. Uh, Back in season one. Yeah. It was even kind of shot in a similar way. Uh, except for the fact that in that you never saw anything other than the Daleks uh, sucker arm. Mm -hmm. You know. But yeah, that that's the kind of the tone that I thought it had. And I, I liked that. I thought it was a good callback. And, and it felt a lot like classic Who. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to change the subject. Oh. But the thing with the transmat. Yes. When he said, I programmed it so that one half would materialize where the other half was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I, I literally got this image in my head. Have you seen Galaxy Quest? No. I want to, but I haven't. It's so good. You need to watch Galaxy Quest. It's on Netflix. Okay. Um, or at least it, it has been. In Galaxy Quest, they, this, this guy is trying to use the teleport machine, mm -hmm. and he's never used it before. Uh oh! But it was designed, you know, because the whole the whole gist of this thing is the aliens designed the spaceship based on watching an old TV show, and he's one of the actors from the old TV show. Uh huh. So. <laughs> They designed this to follow his hand movements and stuff so that, you know, it's supposed to operate the way that he did it on the show for years, you know. But he's, it's like, it's been a long time. He doesn't even remember what he used to do, you know. <laughs> he was just mashing buttons and pulling levers and mm -hmm. turning knobs. And so <clears throat> he gets this thing out and, you know, he has to target it kind of like a gun. He doesn't want to teleport the the captain without finding out whether or not he can do this correctly so he fires this 
at this pig alien monster thing that it looks like a two-legged pig with like multiple eyes and oh. you know yeah it's really ugly and uh he, he teleports it into the ship and he turns it inside out oh <laughs> and it's really nasty <laughs> yeah it's bad Ew. and so it's like squealing and screaming and squirting stuff out and you know, it's like it's got one leg sticking out this way and one leg sticking out that way, and its insides are on the outside and its oh. outsides are on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And and the, and the captain's like, "So how did it go? Did it work?" <laughs> and somebody's like, "He turned it inside out." And he's <laughs> like, "What did you say?" <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you gotta Nasty. watch it. You have to watch it. It's hilarious. <laughs> Nasty things, transmats. Um, <laughs> you gotta watch it. It's hilarious. <laughs> so episode two comes back. Uh, Ace, of course, is able to get back up and beats the uh, headmaster uh, off. She knocks him out slightly. Is she headbutts to... him in the stomach. Yeah, well, yes. Let's, let's <laughs> just not sugarcoat it. Headbutts him in the stomach and is able to get the door unlocked long enough for the doctor to fall out. And um... he asks her, what's wrong with him? She says, stomachache. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, Group Captain Gilmore had been sending anti-tank rockets to these uh, locations because that's what's going to work against the Daleks. The doctor and Ace run out, and uh, the consignment of anti-tank rockets has just arrived at Coal Hill School. Uh, the Doctor and Ace take one after, of course, uh, the gentleman dropping them off has them sign for it. Because, you know, you have to have the bureaucratic apparatus of the military in full effect. <laughs> What's the government without red tape, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> By the time they burst back into the school, uh, of course, this is after hours, so there's no kids running around. The Dalek has blown the door apart and is in the main area. The Doctor and Ace duck behind a table, and she fires the anti-tank rocket, uh, blowing up the Dalek. And it was very cool. Yeah. Leaving, of course, a giant scorch mark on the wall right behind her. <laughs> he says, you destroyed it. And she says, I aimed at the eye stalk. <laughs> <laughs> at the eyepiece. And then Group Captain Gilmore, uh, Mike, and the rest of the soldiers run in, of course, you know, just a few minutes too late to do anything. Now, we're we're supposed to assume, I guess, that this headmaster is Ian and Barbara's former boss, correct? Probably. Yeah. Because he thought the doctor was applying for the teaching position. He's trying uh, to... Actually, he said the custodial position. That's right, the caretaker. He said, you're here for the caretaker position, Which right? Which is what Peter Capaldi ended up doing. Yes. Yes, it is. I saw that this time, and I was like, that's great. So, Peter Capaldi remembered that. So. Oh, man, it was great. It was great to get that sort of backwards reference, you know. Yeah. Uh, once the new episode was aired, it's like, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, that's right. It was it was the caretaker position. 
Oh, that's awesome. I had forgotten <laughs> about that until you just mentioned it. The the doctor, of course, has no time to stick around for cleanup and leaves everyone there while he goes to bury the past, is what he says. Uh, he leaves Ace in the care of Sergeant Mike Smith and um, goes to visit a local undertaker. And this is uh, where he uh, told uh, Ace, he says, she said, uh, I'm going with you. And he says, no, it's not your past. You haven't been born yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he leaves and they ask her, what did he mean by you haven't been born yet? And she just gets this sly grin on her face, you know, <laughs> and doesn't answer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Professor Jensen pulls her to, over the side and what did he mean by, you haven't been born yet? <laughs> and Ace just sort of smiles at her. <laughs> and it was great. Yeah, Ace probably hasn't been born for a good 10 years at this point. At least 10 years, maybe more like 15. <laughs> oh, wait, no. If she's a teenager during the 80s, uh, late 80s, then yeah, probably about 7 to 10 years. Anyway. That's neither here nor there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But he goes off to a local undertaker to pick up his casket. Uh, And when he asks to be left alone with it, the undertaker, who's very, you know, confused by the fact that he says he's the doctor, leaves him for a moment with the casket, which is this giant metal casket that's been behaving strangely. (laughs) <laughs> and that that is an accurate description uh the doctor has taken ace's baseball bat with him uh to use uh to test on something and uh in this casket is the omega device which is of course a, a source of great power he tells it to open you know talks to it like it can you know understand him and then says, let's see what you can do with this, and puts the baseball bat in it. The baseball bat submerges beneath the surface of the smoke and energy that's in there, and then he says, now give it back, and it pops up. And uh, it's been imbued with a lot of, you know, energy and power, so it's, you know, a bit more powerful than a standard old baseball bat. (laughs) And then he says, follow me. He tells it to close, and he says, follow me, and as he walks out the door, uh, saying goodbye to the uh, deputy undertaker there, the casket floats out behind him. Yeah. And um, That's hilarious. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's standing there like, uh, uh, and uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because he's talking to his boss saying, Yes, sir, but I thought you said the doctor was an old geezer with white hair. Yeah. And then the doctor walks past past saying goodbye, and the casket floats out after him, and that's when he faints. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the, The interesting thing I want to mention, whenever the doctor is around the school, we get a glimpse of this young girl. I say young girl, she's probably about 12. Yeah. And she seems very peculiar. And the doctor has noticed some burn marks in the playground. Uh, she's been keeping an eye on him. And at one point, she's 
you know, singing sort of a nursery rhyme as she's playing hopscotch or whatever, and then runs off when he comes to say hello, and he goes, oh, she doesn't talk to strangers. Very wise. Um, <laughs> and then he leaves, and she comes back out into the courtyard looking, watching him go, and she says uh, something about the doctor. And so we get the idea that she's involved somehow. Okay, did you notice <clears throat> that every single time that she was shown, you heard the music mm -hmm. that later would match the music in the 11th Doctor's story of Night Terrors. It's at least very similar. I don't. I, I haven't seen Night Terrors uh, it's recently. It's almost enough. identical. Yeah. <laughs> and I kept thinking, when, when she would come on screen, I kept thinking, tick-tock goes, goes the, the clock. clock. <laughs> and, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah that was oh he, here's what she said i do remember what she said she's you know she's doing you know hopscotch and you know it's five six seven eight there's a doctor at the gate you know uh, and it's creepy it's creepy uh, you know especially with the music that goes with it i think that they picked that music in night terrors just for the callback for that it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, that was that was a good choice of music because it was creepy. Yeah. The doctor then takes the Omega device to a graveyard to be buried. And, of course, the priest that he has, you know, overseeing the burial is blind. Uh, yeah. So he can't see what's going on. And the priest makes some remark about his pallbearers being very quiet. <laughs> Yeah, he also asks him, he says, your voice seems to have changed since last we spoke. And he says, oh, yes, several times. <laughs> the interesting thing is that this burial is witnessed by Sergeant Mike Smith. And as the doctor is leaving, Mike has an altercation with the headmaster from Coal Hill School who has been trailing him. And there, and the headmaster is asking him and demanding information about the renegade Dalek faction. And Mike doesn't really know what's going on. And Mike ends up turning around, grabbing the guy's lapel, shaking him and says, who are you working for? And then the guy looks off into the distance, says no, and then is killed. Somehow. Mysteriously. Well, there is, of course, a, this weird a, chip behind uh, his ear. I was going to say, he had some type of microchip or something embedded behind his ear. Mm -hmm. uh, so that could have been used to remotely kill him, I guess. Of course, it turns out the headmaster is working on behest of the white Daleks, which is the Imperial Daleks. Mm -hmm. So we've got the Imperial Daleks, which are the white ones. We've got the Gray Daleks, which are the Gray, the uh, the Renegade faction, and um, which, if you'll remember, in the last episode we talked about, it was the other way around. Yes, yes, so, it was. Yeah. So keep that in mind, folks. The Doctor returns to headquarters where he meets with everybody, and they have discovered the presence of a the large Dalek mothership detected in geostationary orbit directly above London. 
<laughs> and the mothership dispatches a Imperial Dalek assault squad to the repaired Transmat. And we see the Dalek Emperor, who is this interesting sort of... It almost looks like a giant egg sitting on top of a Dalek body. I was going to say a light bulb, but... Well, that too. This this Dalek Emperor is, is uh, definitely the one in charge and is ordering everyone around and uh, he can, becomes important later. Um, well, he looks different from any other incarnation we've seen of the Dalek Emperor. Yes, yes so. he does. The Doctor is vetoing military action against the Daleks because he's hoping they'll, you know, blow each other up, destroy each other up. Uh, <laughs> and he... Uh, asks Group Captain Gilmore to try and set up an evacuation of the, lo- uh, you know, quiet evacuation of the local area, because any military buildup will be detected by the Daleks, and then they will turn their attentions away from each other and onto the humans. And he gets to work building a jamming device that will interfere with the Dalek control systems. And he remarks, "Sim, I created a similar." Uh, thing on Spyridon, which is from Planet of the Daleks, where he turned this uh, sort of like tape deck into a jamming device that helped that he yeah. was able to disable a Dalek with. I like it when they make references back to previous stories like that. Yes, Ace has been left at the uh, has been left to her own devices by this point, which is never a good thing. Never leave Ace to her own devices; <laughs> she'll get into trouble, especially after giving her instructions of specifically what not to do. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, She realizes that she left her tape deck at the school during their first visit. And so she decides to go back and get it. Well, that's kind of a problem anyway, because the technology is, you know, decades ahead of the technology of that time. Yes, it is. And so she gets her backpack and her baseball bat and heads back to the school. As she's poking around, she uh, finds her tape deck, turns it on, and accidentally tunes into the frequency the Daleks are using to communicate with. Because uh, that's a thing, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she realizes the Daleks are there. She hides behind the door uh, because they have detected her presence there in the school and they're coming after her. The way that uh, the way that I was looking at that with the radio is pretty much everything was broadcasting on AM at the time. Uh-huh. So the Daleks are automatically going to say, "Well, that means we can broadcast on FM frequencies, and nobody will know." Yeah. So there you go. But either way, she hears that they're coming after her, and when the first Dalek comes through the door. Uh, she is able to beat the snot out of it with a baseball bat, which has, of course, been, you know, enhanced due to the Omega device. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is I was watching a behind-the-scenes feature, because I have this DVD. Of course you do. <laughs> and the first time they filmed this scene, she was supposed to beat up the stunt Dalek, which was designed to be able to take the beating she was going to give it. And then they had it. A... <laughs> And then they had, but they had the real one there. Oh, with someone inside of it. Nice. 
and she was only supposed to, you know, begin the attack and not actually, you know, do it all. Well, she had forgotten. Because that wasn't the stunt Dalek. And Sophie Aldred, playing Ace, beat the snot out of the, the real Dalek. And you could hear the guy inside screaming, you know, like, ah, stop, stop, you know. <laughs> hey, at least goes, they got the realism, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, afterwards, she's very apologetic, but. Something tells me they had to loop that shot. <laughs> oh, no, she went after it for a, a, quite a little bit. It was... I'm talking about to take out the voice of the guy inside oh. screaming. <laughs> Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty I, sure they had to record all, re-record all the audio for that. Oh, shot. probably. <laughs> but I think they used that shot in the final episode. <laughs> well, they should have. <laughs> they at least should get their money out of what got damaged, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> but another Dalek comes in behind. And uh, starts firing away at her, uh, blowing up her tape deck uh, in the process. And she, you know, jumps through the window into the hall and begins running down the through the schoolyard and manages to grab, on her way through, another one of the anti-tank rockets. But it's not, you know, loaded onto the onto the firing piece yet. And so she's managed to get into basically the garage area, I think, of the schoolyard, and is trying to load the rocket and gets surrounded by three Daleks. Thankfully, the doctor discovered where she went and came charging in to her rescue with the military and his uh, Dalek jammer that he wasn't even sure would work properly. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, it did work, and they were able to, you know, put plastic explosives on the Daleks, get Ace out of the middle there, and blow up the Daleks. Uh, When Professor Jensen and Allison go to investigate these Daleks, because these are the white Daleks, not the gray Daleks that they investigated earlier, they note that there are some differences in the organic component to the Daleks. Yeah, enhancements and modifications galore. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, And uh, the gray Daleks are, you know, a little bit more of a primitive state where the white Daleks have the enhancements and the mechanical additions to the organic, you know, being inside. I know one of them even uh, looked like it had sort of like a almost like a crab pincher or something. Yes. You know, that it could use to defend itself with, you know, and yeah. because when the the doctor, you know, comes over to take a peek, you know, he sticks his head over the uh the blown open Dalek casing mm-hmm. and the Dalek inside was still alive and of course, you know, grabs his throat and tries to throttle him before Allison can grab the baseball bat and beat the thing to a pulp. She looked like she was churning butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she sticks the end of the bat and just starts like jamming that thing down on top of the Dalek inside repeatedly to the point where she just keeps going and the doctor has to stop her and goes, it's it. Allison, Allison, stop, stop, stop. It's dead now. It would have, it would have been funny in my opinion, if we'd heard it going, eh, eh, eh. 
every time yeah. she'd hit it. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Through the speaker, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ratcliffe has somehow discovered where the Omega device was buried. And he and his men are digging it up. And have been watched mm. by this young girl who's been popping up all over the place. When you watched this the first time, had you already seen um, the Sixth Doctor episode? Prince? No. Okay, you had not? I had not. You had already seen the Fifth Doctor, though? I might have. Reason I'm asking is because I, I I watched these the very first time I watched some of these I watched them all in order. Okay. So I watched the fifth Doctor episode, then the sixth Doctor, and then the seventh Doctor episode like that. And <clears throat> I specifically watched all the Dalek episodes back to back. And so when I start seeing these people that are acting very peculiarly. Mm-hmm. I immediately started thinking about the people that were left on Earth from the Fifth Doctor story, you know, having been implanted into, you know, various points on the Earth. But the one thing that I couldn't wrap my brain around was whether or not that had been going on since the 60s or if it had just started happening in the 80s. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, the Daleks aren't very specific about that. So no, so that was that was the one thing that that I couldn't really make out a distinct, uh, accurate, I guess, assumption about because if that didn't take place until sometime in the '80s, this this would have absolutely nothing to do with that situation. However, if it had been happening for a few decades then you could see how they could have already had people implanted on the Earth even back when the Doctor was here the first time. Gotcha. Well, that's interesting. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention is that after rescuing Ace, the Doctor decided to buy himself some time to figure out the situation by uh, destroying the Transmat device with Ace's baseball bat. And this is where my opening line came in. Yes. <laughs> he just keeps wailing away at the transmat device and ends up breaking the baseball bat in the process. <laughs> and he looks at the the handle, says, weapons, always useless in the end, and then tosses it over his shoulder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> then he says, oh, you look hungry. How about lunch? Yes. <laughs> As if it's just another day in paradise. You exactly. Know? <laughs> Well, he, he says that because uh, <laughs> Professor Jensen and Allison have been standing there just watching him go to work on this, go to town on this <laughs> thing, you know, and their mouths are hanging open. And so he goes, weapons, always useless in the end. And he turns back and their mouths are hanging open. He goes, you look hungry. How about lunch? And he, you know, <laughs> uses his fingers to close their mouths and, you know, then turns up <laughs> back up the stairs. He's so ADD. I he swear. Is, he is he's so great. ADD. Tom Baker has nothing on ADD when it comes to <laughs> Sylvester McCoy's doctor. <laughs> because at least at least he can say, stay somewhat focused 
when he needs to. Sylvester mm-hmm. McCoy is just kind of all over the map. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's amazing. It's funny. <laughs> During Ratcliffe's uh, exhumation of the Omega device casket, they have released a little bit of the power, which has gotten the attention of the scanners on the Dalek mothership. And the Dalek Emperor sends a shuttle to recover it from the gray renegade Daleks. Uh, as Ratcliffe has the Omega device transported back to his warehouse, he comes in to discuss things with the battle computer, which turns out to be the little girl. <laughs> Not Davros. Like but, they were trying to imply. Yeah, it looked like Davros. It sounded like Davros. Yes. You know, the only difference being that it, he had a helmet. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so the chair finally turns around, reveals it's the little girl. And um, she goes ahead and activates the um, the time controller, which is this primitive technology that has to warm, it has to, you know, charge basically in order to transport the renegade Daleks back to their own time so they can use the Omega device. Of and course, this is the part that where the, the the scene where I actually originally got the idea that we might have been looking at the same copies or clones or whatever you want to call it that we were looking at in the fifth story, the fifth doctor story mm-hmm. is because she specifically tells Ratcliffe, she says, you were born to be a servant of the Daleks. And that's what gave me that idea. We haven't talked about Ratcliffe very much, but his association with, you know, Mike Smith is interesting because he's not a nice man. He talks about, you know, believing that England was on the wrong side during the last war, implying the last war being World War Two. Yeah. And implying that Hitler had it right. He's not a nice person. No. Yeah. The doctor is trying to figure things out and talks to Ace about this. He, he, he sort of gives her a little bit of history on the Omega device, what it is. And uh, I, like, I like the scene because, you know, he, he tells her what it is, that it was created by Omega to, uh, you know, help create or alter stars and serve as the basis for a lot of their Time Lord technology that allowed them to move across time and space and well if this is living technology then it would make sense that this would be the technology that led into the creation of the TARDISes he makes some remark about you know we mm-hmm. you know implying use... that he was there when it happened yes and then Ace picks up on that she goes we and he goes they <laughs> trying to deflect a little bit and so yeah. you get the idea that maybe maybe the doctor's more integral uh in time lord society than he likes to imply than he then he likes people to believe so. you you also kind of get the impression that he might have stolen this thing when he left gallifrey the same way that he stole his tardis yes in order <laughs> to keep that power out of the hands of people who would misuse it. Yeah. And that's um, just another piece of the puzzle that you find out about the Doctor's past. Exactly. And he's trying to figure out the best way to keep Group Captain Gilmore and his soldiers and the rest of the people here out of harm's way 
while the Dalek factions basically are getting ready to go to war with each other. And so he goes, we need to go back to the school. And of course, he, he's you know, under the impression that we need to set up some sort of command base there. Uh, but in reality, his you know thought to Ace is, that's the least likely place the Daleks will be. And I need to keep the people safe. So we're going to go there. Although he may have miscalculated. <laughs> because remember those burn marks in the uh, playground of the school? That was made by a Dalek landing shuttle. <laughs> and that's where the Imperial Daleks land their shuttle. <laughs> right yeah. after he got finished saying, oh no, they'll never land here. They'll be over where all the action is. <laughs> yep. And then you start hearing the ship come down and... Uh, <laughs> Professor Jensen says, are you sure? He says, oh. And then Ace I goes, have... whoa, from the window. Yeah, he says, I may have miscalculated. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> but the Daleks, you know, emerge from the shuttle along with this new Dalek, which we later hear is called the Heavy Weapons Dalek. And it's uh, rather than having one gun arm and one sucker arm it's just got this giant cannon in the front and there, there's a basically an extra firepower and they leave and he start heading towards the renegade dalek base i kind of got the impression that this might have been like the prototype uh that they then started to mass produce later during the time war mm. you know yeah yeah it, it, it's definitely something that uh reoccurs in a lot of the images that's used mm-hmm. uh, during a lot of the the war doctor stories. And you uh, see one, at least one, in Asylum of the Daleks as well. Mm-hmm. So. And there's one in the background during Magician's Apprentice and Witch's Familiar episodes. Yeah. So, uh, it, and it's, I it's guarantee you it's not the same one. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, during the course of events... Mike Smith has been discovered as Ratcliffe's agent, and it is revealed that Ratcliffe has been working with the renegade Daleks. Uh, Gilmore has him detained. Ace is furious with him because he's been using her as basically cover when he, you know, leaves to make secret calls to Ratcliffe or meet with Ratcliffe. And he claims that he didn't know who Ratcliffe was working for. Uh, he claims that he was trying to help Ratcliffe in his society or whatever. His uh, no, not a society. His uh, association. Association. Yeah, but you kind of don't believe him, even though he's trying to look sincere. Um, unfortunately, he's able to break out of captivity and heads to Ratcliffe's warehouse, where Ratcliffe is prisoner, and the rest of Ratcliffe's men have been killed by the emerging forces of the renegade Daleks. They have a supreme Dalek with them, and they are preparing to protect the time controller in order to be able to leave with the Omega device as soon as it is fully charged. They have returned to find that the Doctor may have tampered with it, (laughs) turned it off for a bit, uh, yeah. So it has to start over again. And this is another one of his, you know, uh, time, you know, playing for time 
uh, elements that he's been doing. And so this all leads to Ratcliffe and Mike trying to take the time controller in order to get some sort of, you know, control back from the renegade Daleks because they're a prisoner and they don't like it. And the the girl who's been basically built, you know, helped to use this, the battle computer because they need her imagination, remember? Call back to the issue with the Movellans. They yeah. need her imagination. She's been imbued with some sort of power and, uh, like, lightning power. Which and we so, have only seen prior in Devros. Exactly. And so when uh, Mike and Ratcliffe take the time controller, start trying to escape the warehouse, she zaps Ratcliffe to death, and Mike is able to escape. She goes after him, and this is when the Imperial Dalek faction blows open the doors and starts all-out carnage with the, uh, the renegade Dalek faction. And we get yeah. Dalek on Dalek action. <laughs> that sounds weird. <laughs> I maybe not should have said that. Anyway. We... <laughs> Your face is red. <laughs> <laughs> we get Dalek on Dalek attacks. <laughs> attacks, yes. They, they... There's a lot of explosions. Um... The one thing about the Seventh Doctor's run. <laughs> Would you like me to edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> or leave it in? <laughs> I'll let you make that call when you listen to it. <laughs> because it was I funny. <laughs> I don't care. It was I don't funny. Care. It was. But your face is still red. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, and there's an all-out firefight going on, and it's, you know, explosions everywhere. The one thing about the, the Seventh Doctor's run is, in large part due to Ace, uh, we see an uptick in explosions on Doctor Who. <laughs> and this episode is no exception. There are explosions everywhere, and it's kind of glorious. The Doctor wants Ace to track down Mark uh, Mike Smith because, you know, he escaped prison, and uh, he begins to construct a communications device from the remains of the transmat that he's, you know, blowed up. And uh, <laughs> it was funny. He he constructs this communications device, and uh, Professor Jensen says, "Doctor, how do you do that? Well, do what? Just build something out of odds and ends like that." And he goes, "Well, it's easy." When you've had 900 years experience. <laughs> and then, you know, just sort of smiles and leaves. Uh, the you room. know what I find funny? Hmm. I find it funny that from the fourth doctor all the way through, like, the tenth doctor, he mm -hmm. says that he's 900 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so you begin to wonder... How old is he really, you know? <laughs> you begin to wonder if he's forgotten his age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, seriously, all the way from the 4th, all the way through the the 10th, maybe, not the 11th, I think, but th at least through the 10th, mm -hmm. he says he's 900 years old. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. The 10th Doctor at least says he's, you know, I'm 903 or 904, I don't remember. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm a Time Lord from Gallifrey in the Constellation of Cerberus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm going to save this planet and everyone on it. You know, something like that. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> anyway. How, how many times have you been 900 years old, you know? <laughs> Is that the Time Lord equivalent of 40? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> How many years are you going to be 39, Doctor? Um, <laughs> anyway, during the confusion, the Imperial Daleks have managed to get control of the Omega device and have taken it back onto the shuttle and have returned it to the mothership. This is when the Doctor seems very pleased and you're wondering why he's so happy. Well, he and when... said something to to Ace earlier that kind of, the very first time I watched it, it, it put a big question mark over my head. Because he specifically said that he didn't plan on there being two Dalek factions to show up at the same time. Right. And now he had to make sure that the correct one got the Omega device. Yes. <laughs> you know? And I was going, what, what, wait, what? You Why? want them to have it? You know? <laughs> exactly. And this is when he makes contact with the Dalek mothership. And he pulls out his old title of, you know, President-elect of the High Council of Gallifrey as he's making, con, you know, contact. The which, Doctor only uses that when it's Which he has been since he was the fourth Doctor. Yes, that is true. Uh, he hasn't actually served in that capacity. But he is president-elect of the High Council of Gallifrey. High Council of Time Lords on Gallifrey. And uh, he, he pulls that title out when he wants to sound important and uh, get people's attention. And he begins to communicate with the Dalek Emperor. And through the course of the conversation, the Dalek Emperor seems to recognize the Doctor. And says, Ah, Doctor, your appearance is, is, is as inconstant as your logic or something like yeah. that. I, I don't as is inconstant as your logic. And you hear the Dalek Emperor say that, and you go, oh, is this finally who we think it is? Well, his voice doesn't change in tone, but it changes in timber. Yes. You know. In his speech pattern. Exactly. Changes slightly. And it changes to somebody a little more familiar. And then the giant egg or light bulb on top peels back a little bit, opens up, and inside the Dalek Emperor is Davros. <laughs> and uh, the Doctor goes, Davros, I should have known. And we get one of the greatest interactions of the Doctor and Davros ever. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, Davros feels that he is in complete control. The Omega device is back on his ship. He is now the leader of the Imperial Dalek factions who are in control of Scaro at this yeah. point. So somewhere between the Sixth Doctor story and the Seventh Doctor story, he managed to not only uh, talk his way out of prison and trial, but get control of one Dalek faction have a Dalek Civil War where his faction took over and they're now the rightful ones in control of Skaro. Right. So never underestimate Davros. Which is... Ever. I think it really is is 
nice kind of homage to the past couple of stories, mm-hmm. you know, because you can see how each story arc is another step that leads to this eventual uh, conclusion, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they're written specifically to work out that way. Right, and uh, it's it was really great uh, to see him back on top finally and how pleased he was to be back on top uh, because he <clears throat> thinks he's unstoppable at this point. Uh, this is the reason, though, why I've said before that the stories are not what I have a problem with. It's some of the execution of the stories that mm-hmm. I have a problem with because I like the way that they're telling this story and playing the long game with this character of Davros, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I wish that we had a little bit more fill-in in between, but I'm I'm happy to have what we have, you know. Yeah. Um, because the way that this is told, you can tell it was intentionally constructed to have point A lead to point B and point B lead to point C and so on and so forth so that you would eventually end up with this conclusion. Props to the writers, you know, the writers that put this together, as, as far as I'm concerned. Was there a little bit that they could have touched up on? Yes. Was there a little execution they should have worked on? Yes. But the stories themselves, the 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 core part of those stories, are, are they're solid, you know. Yeah, they are. The Doctor goads Davros into beginning to monologue. As your Davros favorite part loves to do, <laughs> your favorite Davros, part. <laughs> it, this is my favorite part. Davros begins to declare how the Daleks will become supreme and will become all powerful, and this is when the Doctor jumps in and takes over Davros's train of thought, and he jumps in and says, "All powerful, crush the lesser races." Conquer the universe, unlimited rice pudding, etc., etc. And you've probably heard me say that before, but I will say it again because this is where it happens. And the doctor mocks Davros to his face. And it is yeah. one of the most glorious things the doctor has done in a long time with Davros. Yeah. I love it. Of course, I, I don't it. see him doing that if he was surrounded by Daleks at the time. But Probably you, you never know, because look at what he did with, you know, the Daleks in Season 9. So Right. <laughs> right. He gets Davros so angry that he's speaking to fume. And then the Doctor goes, oh, Davros, I beg of you, don't use the hand. And Davros is like, that's perfect. I will transform Scarrow's son into a source of unimaginable power that will fuel the conquest of the universe, that sort of thing. And he activates the Omega device. And oh, it... I'll just be honest. I think, at least in my mind, in my heart, that that was the Doctor giving Davros one final shot. One final instance where he says, I'm going to give you this one sliver of, of, of advice not to do this because I really hope that you won't take that route and and if you do there is no return right because the look on the doctor's face when he did say that one line don't please don't use it he seemed sincere he didn't seem like that he was goading him to do it 
But I feel like that he knew he was going to do it anyway, even if you asked him not to. Whether it was fully sincere or double-edged or what, uh, Davros goes ahead and uses the hand. He activates it, and it has been pre-programmed by the Doctor at this point. Yeah. The energy fires back at Skaro, and instead of doing what Davros wanted it to do... It causes Scarrow's son to supernova. Yeah. Obliterating the surface of Scarrow and comes hurtling back towards the mothership. This is the reason why once you get into Matt Smith's run, you see the surface of Scarrow as just decimated. It looks like it was hit by atomic weapons all the way across the entire surface. Yeah. Uh, because it, it essentially did. And the energy from the Omega device heading back to the mothership, Davros panics, tells the Doctor to have pity on him, which is a remarkable thing to hear Davros say. And the Doctor just says, I have pity for you. Mm-hmm. Davros flees for an escape pod moments before the Omega device crashes back into the mothership, destroying it. Then following its programming by the Doctor, returns itself to Gallifrey. This is the point where the Doctor got scary for me in this story. Yeah. You know, uh, because except for that one little glimmer of hope that he tried to reach out with and say, I'm warning you, please don't do this. And he knowing that Davros wasn't going to listen to him. Other than that, he was cold, 100% cold. You know, and it was like, almost like watching a different man, you know. And that was what I was referring to before uh, when I was talking about how you get to see sometimes that dark side of the Doctor come back out, you know, like he did in some of the points with the third Doctor and even the fifth Doctor that we talked about before, you know. Sometimes he can be downright scary, Yeah, you know, because he's supposed to be your hero. Right. And when you see that switch flip and you're looking at him and you don't even recognize him anymore. Yeah, we're going to get into another story like that here in a few weeks. Um, mm-hmm. That's when he gets scary. Yeah, and yeah he does. <laughs> it's just a little unnerving sometimes. Well, it, um, it becomes, and the Seventh Doctor does it repeatedly, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it becomes almost borderline psychopathic to a certain extent when it comes to dealing with certain races or certain villains or whatever, you know, because he has become so jaded when it comes to like Davros and the Daleks and some of those that he continues to have to, to go back and, and face over and over and over it, knowing that they're never going to change, you know? Right. Wrapping things up, Ace has tracked Mike back to his house where he's hiding out. He has her at gunpoint to try and, you know, find a way out of this when there is a knock at the door. He opens the door and the little girl is there. (laughs) Yep. And she bursts into the house, zaps Mike to death right in front of Ace and starts trying to go after Ace. Simultaneously with this, the Doctor has tracked down 
the supreme Dalek of the Renegade faction, which is the only Dalek left on Earth at this point. This is the, now the, the Black Dalek. Yes, the Black Dalek. Now, the Supreme Dalek here and the girl are connected with the battle computer. And this Dalek is, you know, surrounded by the military, uh, and the doctor begins to advance towards it and starts telling the, the Dalek everything that has happened. Scaro's son has been destroyed. You know, you're all alone. You have no purpose. And the Dalek basically has some sort of nervous breakdown about the whole situation and self-destructs, severing its link with the little girl and causing her to pass out. Yeah. Which saves Ace's life, and then Ace starts cradling and caring for the girl. We did leave one thing out. What did we leave out? Davros's fate. Well, he went into an escape pod. We think. <laughs> Well, the Daleks on the bridge said, you know, Emperor Dalek leaving an escape pod. Uh, The ship just was decimated. I mean... It was. It was like watching the Death Star blow up Alderaan. You know? (laughs) It was a massive explosion. It was was bad. We assumed Davros escaped. But it all Uh, happened so fast, they, they left it open to interpretation at that point. Exactly. Exactly. The Doctor ends his little dissertation against the uh, Supreme Dalek by saying, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The show ends at Mike Smith's funeral. The Doctor and Ace have walked up with the casket to the church, but they don't go into the church. And Ace wonders if they did a good thing. And the Doctor turns around and says, time will tell. It always does. Mm-hmm. And they leave. It was a really cool way to add to the the mythos that we already had of the Doctor in season one, without having to change anything from mm-hmm. from season one. You know, yeah. And and it gives the an even richer backstory at that point. Yes, I love it to the Doctor. It was great. It was yeah. a great story. There's one scene in particular that we didn't talk about that I think is important for people to know. The night before everything goes down, the doctor is on his way back from somewhere, and he stops in at the cafe and has a conversation with uh, the the night manager, basically, who's running the cafe, and I don't remember his name. But he's played by the same guy who's the butler in Fresh Prince of (laughs) Bel-Air. And I don't remember his name. I'm looking... Anyway he has a conversation about choices mm-hmm. and decisions. And one of the most famous lines of the seventh doctor is about, you know, decisions are like a huge boulder that's dropped in a lake causing ripples. And the bigger the decision, the bigger the ripples and that sort of thing. And it, and he's, you know, questioning whether or not what his plan is for the following day is the right one. This is when he was asking, um, <clears throat> If he wanted sugar in his tea. Exactly. And he says, is it really going to matter? And he, he says, says, it would make your tea sweet. Yes. And then it, that turns into a conversation of, well, what if we had uh, not made the choice to even do anything with uh, sugar in the first place? And he said, well, 
than my, what was it, his great-grandfather never would have been brought over as a slave, and he would not, he would still be an African, is what yeah. he said, you know. Yeah. So it, it kind of, I guess, what you'd refer to the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they say a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world, and the other, other side of the world there's a hurricane, you know. The, the gist of it being one tiny little event of someone deciding, I think it'd be a good idea to harvest sugar, then turned into, you know, something that led to him actually being born in in England, you know. Right. And being an English or British citizen. Uh, right. Where he would have been in a tribe somewhere had he, had that not ever happened, you know. And so, of course... This comes back to the doctor has decided to blow up Scaro, or at least Scaro's son. And is that the right decision? And well, maybe it wasn't. Well, he decided to allow Davros to make that decision. Well, yes. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Technically. But of course, we get the time war not too many yeah. years later. And uh, th- this could be one of those... Uh, culminating incidents that leads to the beginning of the time. I would dare say that it's one of the deciding factors. Yeah. Uh, because it was, honestly, Davros wanted the uh, the hand of Omega so that he could use the power that it wielded to destroy Gallifrey. And the Doctor basically beat him to the punch and let him destroy Scarrow instead. So... Yeah. If that is not a catalyst for war, I don't know what would be, you know. It's definitely something that, if not is the catalyst, it's one of the catalysts and for see, the time. I feel like that this also leads into the guilt that the Doctor feels uh, after the time war as well, because in his mind, he's thinking, I've destroyed two races mm-hmm. completely with yeah. without giving them the opportunity to disarm, you know, basically. All right. Final thoughts on Remembrance of the Daleks. Oh, dude. Oh, I will say this. The the tone of this story uh, and the filming style and everything, it felt a lot like uh, season one of the new series. It felt a lot like RTD was trying to recapture that feel that we had at the very end of the classic run so that mm-hmm. they would feel like that they just kind of transitioned into one another, you know. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we'll talk about this uh, in another episode. But when we talk about the the Doctor Who movie, the the, the tone and the visual style of it was a lot more of like what you would see with Matt Smith's run. Uh, yeah. Whereas true. the tone of uh, RTD's run tried to stay true to the feel and the tone and everything that you had with uh, the seventh doctor's run uh, more so than uh, with the movie itself. That is, that is very true. Uh, it, it, it's been, it, it was, it's definitely, uh, as I've said, one of my favorite Dalek stories uh, and is one of my favorite Seventh Doctor stories too. It, he's got a lot of good ones, in my opinion, that, yeah. that I really like. Anyways, well, Battlefield even, is another example. Even of down one of my to favorite. the music, though, 
the, oh, yeah. the the music in this felt a lot more modern and everything too, and it felt a lot more like that it would naturally just transition into the revival series, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. The the only it, it's def it's definitely uh, very eighties and yeah. very you know techno and synthesized. Uh, but but the way the music is but used, some of the, the music, music in the new series was too at the very beginning, mm-hmm. you know. True. Uh, now I will say this though, the one thing that makes it stand out different to me, um, and I don't know if I like it or not. It's just I think that a result of the times more than anything else is the logo. For the show changed between the sixth doctor and the seventh doctor mm-hmm. um and then again from the seventh doctor to the ninth doctor or what you know we call the ninth doctor because we don't count the word doctor um right so you know the logo for that particular uh era is completely different than it was before or after and i it has a very '80s feel to the logo. Let me put it that way. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it has even more so. It feels like a, more of an '80s kids show to the logo. You know, but that would probably be my number one criticism of that. You know, is just it was almost like they were trying to force the issue that we're trying to make this a kids show. You know, by doing okay. that. Um, but other than that, dude, I mean, it's it was great. It was, it was fantastic, you know. And I, I really didn't have, you know, qualms when it came to the special effects or the acting or whatever, you know. And it really didn't take me out of it, you know, when they would transition from the exterior to the interior scenes or anything like that. Because most of that was done with natural lighting and stuff anyway. And right. most of it was actual real world, you know, locations. Uh, yeah. and, and so it really felt natural. It really felt real world, you know. Um, yeah. We, we did get to see the Daleks uh, actually shooting their death rays as opposed to the... That we got to see, yes. you know, back in the early uh, era. Uh, right. Which was really cool. Um, there was only one shot in the entire story arc that I could legitimately look at it and say that laser blast was a cartoon, you know, Uh. because the way that it was angled toward camera, it made it look flat, uh, like it was laid down flat and it looked like a flat beam, you know, that was coming towards camera. And so it looked like that it was, uh, drawn in as opposed to being an actual light beam, you know, Mm -hmm. but other than that, I didn't really see anything to complain about with special effects or anything like that. You know, it was, everything was pretty great, you know? Yeah. Um, you want to go ahead and give a rating on this? Yes, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to give this one a nine. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what yeah. I was going to give it to. I'm going to give it uh, a nine. I mean, nine. it's not a hundred percent perfect. Let's be honest. But it's mm-hmm. it's well worth watching. It's oh, yeah. very good, you know. It is. I uh, highly, highly, highly recommend this one. It it is, as I've said repeatedly, one of my favorite Dalek episodes <laughs> ever. I I want people to watch it because I want them to like Sylvester McCoy as much as I do. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, you you start getting the idea, and this is something that they really started playing up in his uh, second and third seasons, is that the Doctor, at this point in his lifetime, is is tired of just reacting to things. And so he's going to start settling old scores and manipulating things to come to final ends to a, right. in, in, to a degree. He's going to start really orchestrating events. And you really get the idea that he is much more than what he's been portraying himself as right. uh, in the past. Of course, now, I think it's only fair to mention that there is a slight bit of an unbalanced state to the Doctor. Uh, because that's one of the reasons why he is so ADD and everything is because, uh, and we might possibly talk about this episode at some time in the future, uh, but we, we have at least mentioned this before. Uh, when he first regenerates into the seventh doctor, he has a confrontation with the Ronnie mm-hmm. and she does something to his brain to give him amnesia at the very yeah. beginning. And in doing so, she affects him in a way that leaves him just slightly off balance for the rest of that incarnation, which I think yeah. is amazingly cool. But, you know, yeah, but I, I do think that that's an interesting way for them to explain why he is so different from his last two incarnations. He, he's definitely uh, a bit off. Uh, which is wonderfully great uh, yeah. when it comes to Doctor Who. So <laughs> it, it's, um, it's got a little bit of the quirkiness of the second Doctor, a little bit of the quirkiness of the fourth Doctor, um, and then because of that, you know, quirkiness in those three incarnations, then you get to have the quirkiness of the ninth, tenth, and eleventh Doctors, which then of mm-hmm. course leads into some of the quirkiness of the twelfth Doctor. Exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> but then but then there's that the manipulative coldness yeah. that comes up that's very unique to to this doctor. Yeah. Um most of the time. And they, they, you see elements of that uh, particularly with the end of uh Tenet's run. Yeah. But but you see, and you see glimpses of it here and there, but he's You really didn't got, see that with Eccleston though. No. No. But the seventh doctor's got this whole unique twist that's, you know, he's got this manipulative streak or this this not maybe manipulative, but almost puppet master, mm-hmm. uh, where he starts yeah. orchestrating events, and and where he gets very cold when he has to deal with the villains directly. Yeah, uh, and he and it's like a, the flip of a switch. He goes from being laughing and joking with his companions and the people that they're working with to being just dead cold, right, with the the villain. Yeah, and so. and that's one of the reasons why I say that that he is just slightly off balance. All right. Well, uh, we want to get your thoughts on on this storyline. Uh, well, first of all, seen... we want you to watch it. Yes, please. <laughs> oh, it's a great story. Uh, please do. Uh, and uh, once you have seen it, uh, just give us your thoughts. Uh, leave us a comment or message on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash talkingtimelords. You can always tweet us 
at TalkingTimeLord, or email us at TalkingTimeLords at gmail.com. Of course, our TARDIS on the Internet, as we like to call it, is our website, which has links to all of our previously released episodes, as well as links to all of our social media sites as well. So if you can't remember the Facebook or Twitter, just go to TalkingTimeLords.com to find those there. Anything else, Paul, before we wrap up this episode? Uh, we might want to talk about what our next episode is going to be about. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> do you want to bring that up? I'll let you. Okay. All right. Well, coming up in May is the 20th anniversary of the 8th Doctor movie. And uh, I know it's it's not the most popular of, of Doctor Who uh, things here for the, uh, the visual media that we have, uh, but... It's the 20th anniversary. We haven't really talked about the 8th Doctor that much so far in our show. And so we're going to go ahead and going to do something a little bit different. Rather than a story review, we're going to have a 8th uh, Doctor movie commentary. So you'll be able to uh, sync this up with your DVD or wherever you have uh, a copy of the 8th Doctor movie, if you have that. And you'll be able to listen along as we talk our way through the movie. So the good, do things a little the bad, bit different. and the ugly. Yes. The good, the bad, and the ugly of all of it. And uh, it, it's going to be uh, a little bit new thing for us here on the show, uh, but we figured we want to do something special for its 20th anniversary. So stay tuned for that, because I think that'll be a fun little experiment. Can't really do that with some of these uh, Doctor Who story arcs, because they are so long. Uh, you know, multiple episodes spanning, yeah. you know, 90 to two and a half out, 90 minutes to two and a half hours, uh, depending on how many episodes are with it. So uh, with the Doctor Who movie, it's a little bit shorter. We'll be able to do that. Hope you are looking forward to that. Uh, anything else, Paul? Just kind of excited about doing our commentary. Um, I will say this. Please do not just cancel out the eighth Doctor because Paul McGann's Doctor is an amazing doctor whether you like the story of the movie or not yes so yes and if you need any further proof i hear big finish uh gives you that in spades oh so, yes of course don't forget to leave us a rating and review on itunes tune in and stitcher wherever you find our wonderful little podcast uh, it really does help us, guys. It, it, it gets does. us noticed and gets the word out there about our podcast so we can help grow our community. Exactly. Uh, but I believe that will wrap up this episode of Talking Time Lords. This has been episode number 38, Remembrance of the Daleks Story Review. For Paul, I'm Jason, and remember, until next time, may you hope far-flung hopes and dream impossible dreams. Thanks, guys. Talking Time Lords is a proud member of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. Visit thunderquack.com to see their entire catalog of podcasts, or visit patreon.com slash thunderquack to help support the shows.
Oh, man. Do we even have a stinger? Oh, I'll man. figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure something out for a stinger. It, it, stingy, it, stingy, mix stinger. It has a sucker. Why does it have a sucker? <laughs> it also has a gun. <laughs> Exterminate! <laughs>